not going to cover everybody's objections. That's just, just due to the nature of, of people and time. In fact, I even had somebody email me this past week about a, concern, a verse that this particular person had concern of. And it's like, wow, I've never even thought about that verse. I've never, no one's ever even brought that one up to me before somewhere in Isaiah. So it's kind of, uh, it's just interesting. So we just, just know that going in and that if we don't get to the one that concerns you the most, just feel free. I mean, I would be more than happy to chat about it if, if you'd like to. Let's go to John 15. We're gonna complete this. We started this uh, last week. We'll just keep this going in terms of review so John 15, this was the passage. Remember, the, the two punchlines were this. Verse two, look at verse two. It says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Okay, and we began to kind of cover that last week and we'll review that this morning. And then down, jump down to verse six. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. And so people that think that you can lose your salvation will look at that verse and say, see, it says fire, thus it equals hell. And that's the conclusion. Those are the two concerning verses. But remember in this analogy, verse one, we've got to identify the key players here. The key players are simply this. Jesus is the vine, believers are the branches, and God the Father is the vine dresser. One of the things we've got to understand is that in order for this illustration or this, this visual aid that Jesus gives to make sense, he is talking about believers Our branches. In other words, there's no unbelievers in the vine. You'll never find anywhere in the scriptures where it says an unbeliever is in Christ. That's just foreign to the scriptures. So right off the bat, when we're talking about branches, we're talking about, I know this is going to sound deep, we're talking about branches. That's what we're talking about. So branches are branches. Branches are the only thing that's in a vine. That's where we start with the analogy, all, all these branches are in Christ. I, I've got Isaiah 5 up there as a reference because God also uses this analogy in the Old Testament as it relates to the nation of Israel. And it's kind of an interesting read. We don't have time to go over that this morning, but it's there for you to check out later. There's some similarities there. And one of the similarities of every vine dresser, let's go, let's go with the secular example, is they want to bear, they want to produce the most fruit possible out of every branch possible. That's the goal. Because in a secular setting, vine dressers are in it for what? Money. I mean, it's, it is. They're all about the green, right? They want more grapes for more wine. That's the deal. Because when they get more grapes for more wine, they make more money. And so that, that's the illustration we have. So the vine dresser, the goal of every vine dresser is to produce as much fruit in his vineyard as humanly possible. Not to give up on a, on a branch that's not initially bearing fruit. The goal is to, why is this branch not bearing fruit? Let me help it along because I, I want as much fruit out of this branch as possible. That's the image that we have. And so the vine dresser, we're going to see both it culturally and also in this example, works tirelessly to do so. He's relentless, if you will. He's going to do this by whatever means necessary to bring forth the fruit that he wants to see accomplished in through the branches. And in this case, spiritually in and through believers, this is God's will to produce the maximum amount of fruit in and through believers. In verse two, we see this described. We've got branches that don't bear fruit. What does the vine dresser do with them? We see branches that do bear fruit. What does the vine dresser do with those branches? Really clearly in verse two, we see two things 
And the first thing is he takes away branches that aren't bearing fruit. Now, if I couple that phrase along with what we know to be true of vine dressers, does that mean, as some people will, will say, that if a believer's not bearing fruit, that God sends them to hell? Or in the vine dresser illustration, if a branch is not bearing fruit, does that mean that the, the vine dresser just yanks the branch out of the vine? Is that what it means? Well, no, we looked at culturally this word, not, not only culturally, but, but in the Greek language, this word takes away has a large range of semantical meaning. In other words, there's lots of different ways that this word is used. We looked at that last week. But one of the, the ways it seems to make the most sense is that this phrase takes away is probably better translated, he lifts up. He lifts up. Why do we say that? Well, because we go to the cultural illustration that Jesus is using for vine dressers. And anybody, anybody ever seen a vine in Georgia? Anybody ever seen a vineyard? What do vines do? They just stick straight out like apple branches, don't they? No, I mean, they, they loop, they turn, they, they wind up things, right? So they're, they're not super stiff, sticking straight out. They, they kind of loop down. Well, some branches in the in first century would, would fall into the dirt, and thus they would be blocked by the other branches. They wouldn't get enough sunlight. They would be in the dirt where there was bacteria and issues with, with soil getting them dirty. And so what would a vine dresser do? He would take the branch, he would lift it up, he would clean it off, and then he would put, this is kind of a, a, an old-fashioned trellis that he would make. It was a little stick in the ground with a little Y shape to do what? To, to lift it up, to get it up off the ground, to get it a little bit more exposed and give it more of an opportunity to bear fruit. And that fits the analogy way better than saying a vine dresser, oh, this, this one's not bearing fruit, boom, I'm gonna pull it out. That just doesn't even fit the analogy of the first century vine dressing. It doesn't even, it doesn't even work. And yet many people will take that as a threat that Jesus is making here to his disciples. Like if you don't bear fruit, you're gonna get taken away. And I don't believe that's what he's saying at all. What does he do with the second type of branch? Well, the text tells us that he prunes branches that are already bearing fruit. Why does a vine dresser prune branches? That seems counterproductive, right? I got this branch, it's doing what it's supposed to do. If I cut it, I may mess it up. No, the incredible thing about vines is if you cut it in a certain way, the, the ones that know what they're doing, they can do what? They produce an alternate shoot, and now guess what? Double the grapes. Wow, that's awesome. Because what's the vine dresser want to do again? Maximize the amount of fruit out of every single branch on his vine. That's the goal. And so we see this as playing out here in terms of the illustration that Jesus uses. We get to verse three. It feels like verse three kind of disrupts the flow a little bit of the vine analogy because he's talking about branches. He's talking about bearing fruit. He's talking about this. He's talking about that. And then he says in verse three, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. See how he kind of like seems to shift away from the, the vine illustration here. Like, what is this all about? You are already clean. Like, why is it even there? And I think it, it seems like it disrupts the flow of the analogy, but I think he's including it here so that there's no confusion regarding verse two. I think it's an extra statement. So as they're not confused about verse two, they are already clean. They are already saved. But now he's talking about fruit bearing. Very important. In essence, he's saying, you're already in the vine through the new birth. You're already a branch. Now we're talking about something that happens after 
that happens. We're talking about fruit bearing. I'm not, we're not threatening you getting ripped out of the vine. That's not the, the emphasis here. It's that God the Father has created you, Ephesians 2.10, he's created you where? In Christ Jesus for what? For good works. That he's designed beforehand that you should walk in them. And so now we're talking about what happens after you've been created in the vine, not uh, you know, if, you're, if you don't bear fruit, you're gonna get ripped out. That doesn't seem to be the tenor of this passage at all. In fact, when we look at Ephesians 2.10, what comes before Ephesians 2.8.9? It's really, it's really interesting. We know Ephesians 2.8.9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then, and then it brings in where works are designed to be. It's not as a part to secure your salvation. It's designed to be a result of your salvation. It's designed to be a result of your position in Christ. Now, why do I bring that up? Because as we get to this illustration of the branch, it's very important to keep those things in order. You don't behave in order to be born. You're born and thus, and then you can behave. But you don't behave in order to be born, nor if, if I have a child and they're misbehaving, nor does that prove that they were never born. And that's how many people view salvation, as if, if, if a believer's not bearing fruit, then they weren't born. How does that make sense? It, so, so think of it this way. Um, you don't have to bear fruit to become a branch. Now, branches are created in a vine for what purpose? to bear fruit. But you don't become a branch by bearing fruit. You can't even bear fruit until you're a branch first. And these are the types of things that we start to get out of order. Nor do you bear fruit to prove that you are a branch. You are a branch because you are in the vine. You are a believer in Jesus Christ because you have trusted in his finished work. That's really the key here. And so your connection to the vine has nothing to do with your fruit bearing. It has to do with whether or not you've been born again is basically it. That's your connection to the vine. Once you're connected to the vine, you have a purpose on earth that God wants to fulfill in and through you. And hence, this vine analogy is great because where does the branch get all of its nutrients? Where does it get the sap that it needs? Where does it get the resources that it needs to bear fruit? It comes up and through the vine and then into their puny little branch. And then the branch merely bears fruit. That's why you'll never go to a vineyard and hear you know, uh, branches grunting, straining, like they're lifting weights, you know, really, really trying to produce fruit. It doesn't, doesn't work that way because the vine is doing all the work. The vine is, is thrusting through the branch everything needed for fruit bearing. And the good news about it is the vine is doing that and the vine dresser is doing what? Positioning every branch in such a way that they can bear maximum fruit. So this is why when we get to verse four, we could spend weeks on this passage. This is one of those situations where I know it's like, we're gonna leave some meat on the bones. It's just kind of the nature of how much truth is in this passage. But really, we're trying to attack this from an eternal security perspective. But this is why in verses four and five, you'll notice that the command is not to bear fruit. Be, let's make a distinction here. This is not the command. The command is what? Abide. And as a result of abiding, what? will happen. What will the Lord Jesus do in and through you? He will produce fruit and your branch will simply bear fruit. So the focus, the occupation of the believer should be on the command given, which is to abide. That's the focus. Verse four, 
Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Again, the command is not to bear fruit, but to abide. And when we talk about abiding, it's an interesting word. Abiding has, has the idea of remaining or staying where you're at. Remaining or staying where you're at. This is one of the encouraging things to consider. Because when you are a branch uh, in the vine of Jesus Christ, you know what you can be confident of? You can be confident that the vine dresser has you exactly where you need to be to bear maximum fruit. And you know why that comes in handy all the time? It doesn't mean that you can never move locations. It doesn't mean you can never change jobs. It doesn't mean that you can't end a relationship and these kind of things. That's not what it means at all. It just means that Today, wherever you find yourself at, whatever position you find yourself in, you can bear fruit. And some of us don't think that way. We think, well, if I could just get out of this job, then I can start bearing fruit. Oh, if I could just get out of this relationship, I could just start bearing fruit. Oh, if I could only go to Cancun where it's warm. No, I'm kidding. Sorry. <laughs> but if I, could, if I could just be somewhere else, you know, some people... You know, they're in Noonan, not by choice. They're, they're longing for the day that, that their U-Haul is, you know, burning gas out of Noonan because they're, they're not here by choice. They think this is the most dead-end spot in the world. And typically, it's the people that grow up here, right? That's, but guess what? It's, it's that way all over the country. It's, it's that way all over the country. The grass is always greener somewhere else. But you know, what, what, what people end up thinking is, I can't bear fruit until X, Y, or Z happens. You know what? The truth of the matter is, wherever you're at today, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can bear fruit. You can bear fruit. The vine dresser's got you exactly where he wants you, right in your life, in your sphere of influence to bear fruit. That should be encouraging, that you have usefulness to God wherever you are. Very important to recognize. And so the believer is, is thus told to remain or stay where they're placed. And so the focus for the believer is not the fruit, but the root. That's the occupation. And sometimes it's very easy to get distracted. So when we say focus on the root, what do we mean? Just enjoy Jesus Christ. Just enjoy fellowship with Jesus Christ. Make fellowship with the Lord your primary objective in life. And then watch to see as the Lord begins to live in and through you to others, to begin to motivate you to know how to serve others, what you can do practically for others and, and live that out. And so it's, it's occupation and fellowship with Jesus Christ. So the, the vine dresser, this is great. You know why you don't have to worry about fruit? Because that job description's already been filled. That's what I love about fruit bearing. It takes all the pressure off of the Christian life because I, I don't know about you and those of you that have been in church long enough, you know that pressure, you felt that pressure. I gotta be banging out some fruit. I got to be cranking out some fruit. I, I need to be showing forth fruit, not only to validate my existence and my value to God, but so that other people see that I have some level of spirituality. They don't think I'm just a total idiot, right? We go through these iterations. You know what? Pressure's off. Vine dresser's going to take care of the fruit. You and I can occupy ourselves with the vine. We can remain. We can abide. We can enjoy Jesus Christ no matter where we're at. 
And sometimes we just need to hear that. We need to be reminded of that because we oftentimes think unbiblically and say, yeah, but if I can just get to here, if I can just do this, if I can just get out of this situation, get into this situation, then I can really be effective for the Lord. And the truth of the matter is you can be effective right now, today, right where you are. Dead end job, bad relationship, noon in Georgia, any, anywhere, right? I mean, these are, this is what we're talking about. So it's very, very important. Again, much more could be said on this. That's not really the point, okay? The point is to get to verse six, but we got to kind of develop the context to get there. So again, here's, here's what's interesting about verse six. Let's read it again. Actually, there's a couple of interesting things about it. Verse six, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. And so let's just talk about what this means. So the believer who doesn't abide in fellowship with Christ is going to lose their usefulness to God because he's not bearing the fruit that God desires to produce in and through him. That really is where we come down to in verse 6. We're, we're using a, an example from the vineyard in the first century. In order to know culturally what's going on, we've got to understand what happens in the vineyard of the first century. And that is this, that eventually branches that are, that are proven over time with great care from the vine dresser to be unfruitful, at some point, they are, they are in a sense, burned as firewood because they, they wither up, they die, they don't have the nutrients going through it. And that's just what happened with vineyards in the first century. And so many people will take this passage and they'll say, well, that, see, that proves that believers can lose their salvation or go to hell. Now, let's look at a couple of points where I think that this, again, shows us that this is not what he's talking about at all. So a believer who doesn't abide in fellowship with Christ is, is basically, I think the emphasis here is as useless as a dried up branch that's thrown into the fire and burn. And there's a couple of things we wanna notice just to point out but we go back to verse six in our text. Notice this, it's not God who does the gathering, casting, or burning, it's men. I think it's a very significant change in pronoun here in verse six. Look at verse six. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And then notice that pronoun, and they gather them, they throw them into the fire and they are burned. So it's not the vine dresser ripping these branches out of the vine and then throwing them into the fire. It's not that at all. It's, it's the, the workers, so to speak. It's, it's men. And so when you try to, it's like, well, how does that apply? Well, what does, who gets the most criticism even in secular culture in the church? Well, it's believers that don't live the way that culture expects Christians to live. And they, and they just view these believers as worthless. In fact, when you have a, a pastor that basically falls into sin. Who piles on the most? It's typically the world. They're like these hypocrite Christians and they kind of hold them up. And so there's, the, there's a uselessness that goes on where people, even as believers don't bear fruit, other people recognize it. The other thing that I think is really probably key to understanding that this is not some future judgment by God is the fact that the timing of all these things are present tense. The, the gathering, the casting, the burning, they're all present tense. They're not future tense. It's not talking about a future judgment day 
where God is going to throw them into the fire. You know, that's, that's what we see in Revelation 20, right? A future judgment day where, where people are raised to appear before the great white throne judgment. And then he's gonna cast them, hell and death into the lake of fire. It's, it, this isn't future tense here. Again, he's using the analogy of the day. What do you do with branches that remain unfruitful, remain unproductive? Well, they're useless, and so what is one use we can get out of a branch that's not bearing fruit? Firewood. <laughs> we can at least get the usefulness of firewood out of a dried up branch. And this is humanly speaking what he's talking about here. He's talking about branches that were no longer good for anything except firewood, except to start a fire. And so just as fruitless branches are of no use in a vine, the believer who doesn't abide in fellowship with Christ is not fulfilling their desired function on earth. What is God's desired function for believers on earth? Fruit bearing. We cannot bear fruit unless we're abiding in the vine. So you see the uselessness of a believer who's trying to do everything in their own strength. They're as useless as a dried up branch in a vineyard example and and illustration. And that's really what's coming through, I believe, in this passage. Now, I will mention this. Although the believer can never stop being a branch. In fact, there's still a branch when they're, when they're considered useless. There's still a branch. It's not that they stop being a branch. They can, deface, they can face divine discipline in the present. We see that described in Hebrews 12, this, this child training, this discipline from God for believers. We see it in 1 Corinthians 11, there's a, a present tense outcome for believers who are not abiding in fellowship. And we see that they were misapplying the Lord's Supper. And so some of them lost their lives. There was a divine discipline unto death. But the other thing that believers who are not abiding can lose, not only things in the present, but they can also lose things in the future. They can lose reward in the future. And so it's very important that believers as a whole recognize that God has a use for them, and he wants to bear or produce fruit in and through them for them to bear. So that's John 15. Let's, let's go ahead and move forward to some of Paul's epistles. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. 2 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 13. And really, the, one, the, the reason this comes up is because, um, largely because of verse 12, the second phrase in verse 12 which says, if we deny him, he also will deny us. The thought process is, if we ever at any point reject Jesus Christ, then he will reject us and we won't be saved. Okay, that's kind of the thought process, why people will bring this verse up. In fact, many people don't even know where this verse is, but they, it's right on the tip of their tongue when you start talking about eternal security because it, it stands out. It's a verse that stands out in your mind because you're like, wow, I don't wanna ever deny Jesus because if I do, he's gonna deny me Eternal life is the thought. Let's, let's look at this, verse 11. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. And what we're gonna see just to, is just some quick context. This, this first phrase, this is a faithful saying, is Paul's way of identifying what probably they, many people think was an early hymn, okay? An early song that they would sing. In fact, many of your Bibles will have verses 11 through 13 indented, like set apart as if it was, he's quoting a, a well-known hymn or song of the early church. And you know, what's really fascinating about it is if, is if you look at it, verse 11 is a statement of great security. 
If we died with him, we shall also live with him. Verse 13 is a statement of great security. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So what's going on in verse 12? Right? It's like we got, we got this sandwich, but it's, many people think it's a knuckle sandwich. You know, like there's knuckles in the middle to slap you upside the head. It's, it's not a knuckle sandwich. It's, it's actually a hymn that's designed to encourage believers to their security. So why is verse 12 in the middle of it? Why does it say what it says? Like what's, what's the point? I think that's what we need to address. We're going to try to do that through context. Now, just remember, again, as I pointed out, the major point of this hymn is to encourage believers. Encourage believers to do what? Well, your future is secure, as evidenced by verse 11 and verse 13, and that should impact the way you live today. And, and oftentimes the scriptures speak of this. It's, it's, it's using truths that are true of you, your glorification, the things that await you in heaven to motivate us to live in a way that honors and glorifies God in the present. And this is what I believe that we're seeing here. And this is why the, the quotation here in verses 11 through 13 uh, follows verses 9 through 10, which says exactly this. It, it reinforces this principle that present suffering will be followed by future glory, thus endure present suffering, right? It's, it's going to be okay. The decisions you make today will have value in the future. That's kind of the idea that's, that's described. Look at verse 9 and 10. For which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect or for believers, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Why does Paul endure suffering? He does it for the benefit of others and their future destiny. He's taking something future and allowing that to impact the way he lives right now. As we get into this hymn, I want you to notice there's a repeated word there starting in verse 11. I'll give you a second to kind of read 11 through 13 and see if you can just locate the repeated word. It's a two-letter word, and it's repeated multiple times. It's the word if. Everyone see that? If this, then this. And one of the things we need to understand in this passage is that all of these conditional statements, conditional meaning if this is true, then that will happen. If this is true, then that will happen, right? That's conditional statements as a whole. Now, what's really interesting is Paul uses the same structure. Now, many of us may not know, but there are four different conditional uh, statement structures in Greek, four of them. Typically in English, we, we think of one way. We think, well, if you do this, and maybe you will, maybe you won't, then this will happen. We do this all the time, right? Well, if you really apply yourself then you'll get a college degree. But what's the insinuation? Uh, if you don't apply yourself, you know, you may end up on the street. You may not end up with a job, right? That's how we typically view conditional statements that, that the condition may or might not be met. That's typically how we do. That's the third class condition in the Greek. So there's four of them. That's the third. So it is representative in the language. But here he uses a special kind of conditional statement called a first class conditional statement. And it's true in all of these conditional statements that we're about to read. First class conditional statements. Here's, here's the point. Why is this important? Because it's a, it assumes the fulfillment of the condition for argument's sake. It assumes that the condition is fulfilled. So this is why you'll see sometimes your Bibles will say since, 
They won't say if this happens. They'll say, well, since this happened, then this is true. So all of these structures here basically say this. If this is true, and let's assume that it is for argument's sake, then that will happen. All right? So let's start working our way through this passage. Verse 11. If we died with Christ, and we did, right? That's the assumption is that it's a positive fulfillment. If we died with Christ and we did, what's the guarantee? We shall also live with him. That is designed to give the believer encouragement. Now, whether we realize it or not, every believer in Jesus Christ has died with Christ. That's a true statement that is taught all throughout the Bible. It's not something you have to kill yourself. You don't have to crucify yourself. It's something that's already happened to you. How do I know that? Romans 6, 6, right? Our old man was crucified with him. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, right? Colossians 2.20 uses the same exact structure we have here, a first-class condition. If I died with Christ to the basic principles of the world, and I did, Colossians 3.1, if I then have been raised with Christ, and I have been, this, this is the structure here. And so this is, this is the easy one, right? This is the one that's on the, the bottom shelf, so to speak. We have died with Christ. We can see that all throughout the scriptures. Well, you know what's true with you? You know what the guarantee is? Since you've died with Christ, you're gonna live with him. You're gonna live with him. This is a promise designed to encourage us. Every person in the history of, the, of Christianity who has ever lost a loved one who was saved rejoices in this truth. That is a truth that we will just take to the bank with us because we know that our loved one, if they've put their faith in Jesus Christ alone, we know that they died with Christ to sin. We know that they are living right now with Jesus Christ. That's encouraging. That's why this hymn is designed to give security and encouragement. That's just a truth to just really soak in and think about if you've ever lost a loved one. That's just encouraging. That's to take your mind and just put it on the Lord and focus on the great accomplishment that God did by identifying our loved ones, identifying us with Jesus Christ to the extent that where Jesus is, that's where we are also. It's just encouraging. It's just rich, rich truth. So that one is pretty simple, pretty basic in terms of our understanding. The next two is where it gets a little bit difficult because now we're talking about our daily life. This is where it gets, this gets a little sticky, but it's the same structure in verse 12. If we endure and we will is kind of the assumption. That's what's assumed to be true. If we endure and we will, we shall also reign with him. Again, it's a first-class condition. The word endure means to remain under. It means to persevere. It means to bear up under. And because it's in the present tense, it means right now, There are things, even as a believer in Jesus Christ, you may not be enduring well, but you are moving through trials as you go through life. You know what? And sometimes we don't do it perfectly. Sometimes we're worried and scared and anxious all the way through, not trusting the Lord one bit. And then I think there are moments where we do. And there are, you know, situations where we do all the way through. It doesn't, it's not talking about you've got to do it Perfectly. You know, that's how some people will say, oh, well, if you're a true believer, again, we try to stay away from those adjectives that aren't biblical, a true believer, but some people will say, oh, a true believer will do this perfectly. And that's not true. 
True believers, any kind of real believers, any kind of adjective we want to use, but believers in Jesus Christ, this is not something that we do perfectly. I can tell you that for a fact because James 1 uses the same exact word here for patience, and it says that it's something that we grow into. The testing of our faith does what? It produces patience, this, this endurance. It's the same exact word. What is true of every believer? Every believer will endure at some level. Again, not, not perfectly. I'm not talking about enduring to the end. I'm just talking about as we move through life. Again, this isn't a future tense. It's right now. There's things that we're moving through in life. And you know what? As you move through in life, although no one does it perfectly, we're going to reign with Jesus Christ because that, that is part of the reward that we're going to receive from the Lord. And so one of the things we learn from the scripture that the more faithfully we move through trials and tribulations, it has an impact in maybe uh, our role or our position in the future administration or kingdom of Jesus Christ. But, but the point is this, the guarantee is that we're going to reign with him. It's a, it, again, it's a promised design to encourage us. It's not to say there's a chance that you won't reign I don't believe. I believe he's saying, hey, if we endure, and we will, at some level, there's going to be a reigning capacity for each of us. Again, designed to guarantee. And now we move to the second phrase in verse 12. If we deny him, this is where it comes about, it comes to, to bear. Because many people, again, viewing this conditional statement as maybe, maybe not. People saying, oh, I'll never deny Jesus Christ, and thus I'll gain entrance into heaven. And people saying, well, I, I'm, I'm worried I might deny him one day. Let's just put it to bed. You have denied Jesus Christ. You do deny Jesus Christ. You will deny Jesus Christ. And I'm just giving a general comment here based on this first class condition. If we deny him, and we will, he will also deny us. Again, First class condition, we're assuming the reality to be true. And this word deny means to refuse someone or to reject someone. You know, what's also interesting about this word is it's found in the middle voice, which means that we, we do the action and we receive benefit for, from it. And you think, how, do, how does denying Jesus Christ give me benefit? Well, why do many of us deny Jesus Christ? When we think about denying Jesus Christ, oftentimes it's because we're, we're trying to avoid persecution. We're trying to avoid people thinking poorly of us. So maybe we, we keep quiet when we have an opportunity to speak up. And we say, oh, I don't want that person or this person. I don't want it to impact my job. There's lots of reasons we do things that benefit us. But this is kind of what comes through with this word is that there, there's a denial of Jesus Christ. And in some way, that denial benefits us or we receive benefit, at least perceived maybe in our mind. So here's my question as it relates to eternal security. If this is assumed that it will happen, how on earth could this be talking about loss of salvation? Because no one would be saved. If that was a condition to be saved, to stay saved, then nobody would be saved. If that, if that last phrase that it says, it, he will also deny us means that he will deny us heaven, then nobody's going to be saved. There's, no, there's not salvation for anybody if that's true. And by the way, this is why Paul, I think, is wording this. It's, a, it's designed to be an encouragement. If we deny him, and we will, he will also deny us. Now, what will he deny? I mean, think, I think that's the, the million-dollar question, right? If it's not eternal life, in fact, it's future indicative. So what that means is it's a guaranteed promise. He will deny us in the future 
Guaranteed. If it's not salvation, what's it all about? Well, again, because the emphasis in the passage is living faithfully while enduring potential hardship, because the previous statement had to do with us reigning with him, it seems best to understand that this is a denial of future reward, which fits the word of God, which fits 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15, that there will be reward lost due to carnality, due to improper motivation and good works, whatever. I mean, we can go through a list of why reward would be lost. But let me just say it this way, and I said it um, probably a little too direct earlier, but let me just explain what I meant by that. Every time a believer sins, they are effectively rejecting or denying Jesus Christ. That's what I mean by that. Because what we're doing, you know, when you boil it down, you get back to the kind of the the mechanism of what goes wrong when we sin. We are in that moment presenting our members to sin. We are presenting our members to the sin nature, and we are not presenting our members to God. That's the uniqueness. And thus, when we present our members to sin, we are rejecting God. We're rejecting Jesus Christ. We are denying him. This is why Paul can say with such confidence, if we deny him, and you will. By the way, I just misstated there. Does it say, if you deny him, then you will? Or does it say we? Does Paul include himself in all of these statements? He does. We. If we deny him. You mean the apostle Paul denied Jesus Christ? I mean, yes, that's what he said. Every time Paul presented himself to sin, have we ever read Romans 7? All throughout that passage, he was denying Jesus Christ. The things he wanted to do, he couldn't do. The things he wanted to stop doing, he couldn't stop doing. Why? Because he was presenting himself to sin. He was rejecting Jesus Christ, rejecting the resources at his disposal. Apostle Paul wasn't perfect. Now, he was spiritual, a large, I believe, a large portion of the time. I think he, he, grew, he was growing spiritually. He was a spiritually mature man, obviously, but he wasn't perfect. There were times where he rejected Jesus Christ. And so it's just important to understand that if we try to understand this in context, it doesn't even make sense that someone would lose their salvation over this because then no one would be saved because it, he's assuming that everyone does this, including himself. So just very important to understand. And then the last piece of bread in this sandwich, which is really good, if, if we are faithless, and by the way, we will be, that's the thrust of that first class conditional. If we are faithless and we will be, he remains faithful. We cannot deny himself. Again, let's assume for argument's sake that we are going to be faithless because we will be. And faithless just means we're unbelieving. We don't put any confidence in. It can, it can mean unfaithful. I mean, is there any debate that Christians can be unfaithful? Yeah. I don't think there's any debate. Christians can be unfaithful. And that's what he's saying here. We, we are unfaithful. What's the encouragement when you're unfaithful? Oh, well, you're unfaithful. You're going to lose your salvation. No, not at all. In fact, he comes back and he doubles down. Uh, it's really incredible how he doubles down because regardless of the believer's unfaithful action or their ongoing state of actions, this habitual sin or habitual unfaithfulness, the verse makes two statements about God that are just mind-blowing mind-blowingly incredible. And the first is, he remains faithful. To who? I believe the context is he remains faithful to the believer. The believer is unfaithful to God, but he remains faithful to the believer. In fact, the word remains is a present tense verb, meaning ongoing and continual action. That means that right now, God is faithful to you. 
even if you've been unfaithful to him. I mean, let that soak in a little bit. That should, I mean, for some of us, depending on what kind of week we had, that might make us feel like a total worm right now. Like, how could that be true of me? Some of you that had a good week, you might, you need to wait a week before this will really hit you well. The good news is this, is even when you're unfaithful, God is faithful to you. Praise God. You don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. We have it on the basis of his grace, based on the finished work of Jesus Christ, that he can respond to you in this way. And this was, was the encouragement of this hymn. You know, this is, uh, you might say it this way, this is God's abiding state of response to the believer. And this is why this hymn is so encouraging. It's the, it's the father of the prodigal son every day longing and looking and stretching and craning his neck, hoping to see his son come back over that hill to restore fellowship. That's a, a great picture of our God. He's faithful. He doesn't ever push you away. And then the second statement we have about God is he cannot deny himself. And the word cannot actually is an interesting word. You know, we always talk about in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. That, that word cannot there is the same word as power in Romans 1.16. And what it describes is not, not just... Um, someone's doing something, having the power to do something, but their inherent power, their internal power, what they've got in their gut to accomplish something. This is why the gospel being the power of God to salvation is incredible because it has the inherent power to save you from a hell that you deserve to a heaven that you don't. That's what's cool about the gospel. Here, what's cool about this word is he cannot deny himself. He doesn't have the inherent ability to deny himself, and this is why he remains faithful to you. So there's a lot more at stake than just God's promises to you. It, it is God's character at stake. It is who God is, in essence, which is at stake. And this is why it's so important. Is there something, you know, you hear that old phrase, is there something that God cannot do? Yeah, I know at least one. He cannot deny himself. He doesn't have the inherent power to do that, nor can he, will he ever do it because he cannot do it. And this is so important. And this is why this hymn, again, is so encouraging. In fact, what would God be denying if he didn't remain faithful to the believer? Well, we've been looking at some of them. He would be denying or rejecting his promises, no death penalty, eternal life, forgiveness of sins. He will build his church. He would be denying and rejecting the finished work of Jesus Christ. When he said, it is finished, he's like, no, I'm still going to require a penalty from some of these ill jokers out here. No, he doesn't do that. He would be denying himself, basically agreeing with Jesus's cry from the cross. It is finished. He agreed with that and validated that by raising him from the dead. He would be denying that. He would be denying himself there and he would be denying and rejecting his own character. And so since God cannot do these things, the believer is safe and secure in their salvation. This is one of those things that, you know, it's unfortunate that this passage, this verse specifically is used in this way because it, the whole tenor of the hymn, the whole theme of this hymn is security, not loss of salvation, but security. And so ho- hopefully that was brought forth. Flip back with me to Galatians chapter five. And I I wanna look at Galatians five and and maybe we'll start this today and and finish this next week. So Galatians chapter five, verse 19 through 21. If you want to, if you're a note taker and you wanna write this down or you just wanna jot this down or if your book's got really good cross-references, I'm sure they're gonna include these two passages. 
But Galatians 5, 19 through 21 has what I would call two sister passages that basically say the same thing, okay? Those passages are 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, and Ephesians 5, 3 through 7, okay? So if you're writing that down, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, Ephesians 5, 3 through 7. All three of the passages, I believe, is the same train of thought that the apostle had when he wrote all three, okay? Now, what we're going to find, honestly, is that the 1 Corinthians passage and the Ephesians 5 passage are actually easier to handle than the Galatians 5. That's why I picked Galatians 5, because I think I didn't want to take the easy way out, so to speak. But I do think the other passages give us light in terms of how to understand Galatians chapter 5. But I just want to kind of work through Galatians chapter 5, but I want you to have these other passages as a reference, especially when it comes to identifying who is Paul talking about in this passage. And I think that's very important to understand. Really quick, let's take a quick review of Galatians 5, 16 through 18, which kind of gives us a nice uh, buildup of context to verses 19 through 21. And so verse 16, and you missed the prequel to this in Sunday school if you weren't there, because this is where Mark ended in Sunday school is verse 15. But verse 16, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The command in verse 16 is to walk in the spirit. That's the command. Many people will flip this and say that the command, uh, they won't say the command, but the way they teach it is you got to stop walking according to the flesh and then you can walk in the spirit. It's the exact opposite. It's walk in the spirit and then you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's a double negation there. You'll never, no, not ever fulfill the lust of the flesh when you're walking by means of the spirit. That's the command there. And so we, we understand that. Now, here's one of the things I'm going to ask you to kind of think here for a second, but you know that the very presence of this command indicates something. It indicates that the believer can walk according to the flesh. The very fact that he commands them to walk in the spirit so as not to fulfill the lust of the flesh tells us that believers can walk according to the flesh. It's a possibility. For instance, I don't tell somebody who's blind to stop to not look at me. That would be rude, right? Partly because they can't look at me. So I would never give them the command to not look at me. I would never tell a quadriplegic, don't stand up in the middle of my sermon because they don't have the ability to, to stand up. You know, it's kind of like telling, you know, your teenage kids to clean their room. You know, sometimes you wonder if that's the same kind of concept. They don't have the ability. No, I'm just kind of kidding. But but the point is, is that the fact that he tells them to walk in the spirit so that they don't fulfill the lust of the flesh implies what? That they have the ability to fulfill the lust of the flesh. And the reason I say that is because when we get to verse 21, the people are going to say, well, see, those who practice such things won't inherit the kingdom of God. So if you do these things that he lists in this list, then it proves you're not saved or it proves you lost your salvation. And it's like, wait a minute, the whole context, he's encouraging you not to walk according to the flesh because you can walk according to the flesh. And the solution to not walking according to the flesh is not try harder, dig down deeper, but it's to walk by means of the Spirit. This is the the whole point in terms of leading up. In fact, Paul goes on in verse 17 to tell us that the result of this battle can be at times that you do the things that you don't wish. Look at verse 17. He says, for the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that 
you do not do the things that you wish. So there's a potential negative outcome where believers walk according to the flesh. Have you ever seen a believer walk according to the flesh? Have you ever looked in the mirror? I mean, you've seen a believer that walks, has walked according to the flesh. We, we all do. Now, it's not encouraged. We're not making light of it. We're not saying, oh, that's okay. Don't worry about it. No, it's very serious. We don't want to walk according to the flesh. Because what does sin always produce? Death. It always produces death. So I don't want you to experience the result of death. I don't want to experience the result of death in my life. Death to relationships, death to fellowship, in the sense with, with the Lord, enjoying all that he provides in terms of peace and, and joy. You, you get robbed of those things when you live in sin. So it's not like we're making light or encouraging believers to sin. We're simply pointing out that the text indicates that believers can sin. And not only that, but they're capable of any sin that the sin nature can produce in anybody. It's not like, I wish, I mean, it just doesn't work this way, but it's not like when you get saved that the, the really bad sins get cut off from your sin nature. It remains in your body, but the really bad sins, that, that flow gets cut off. It's not true. The sin nature is just as evil, just as deceitful, just as wicked, just as capable of any sin under the sun the day after you got saved as it was the day before you got saved. That ought to frighten the living daylights out of us when we are not walking by means of the Spirit because that means that thing, that source of sin in us is capable of doing something to absolutely destroy you and everybody that loves you. Absolutely destroy things. So it's very sober. We're not trying to make light of this, but the point is this, and if we go back to verse 17, Remember this, this is maybe, let's end here because this is kind of an encouraging note and then we'll pick up here as we go forward. There are two enemies engaged in mortal combat and you're not one of them. And there's so many believers who when they think about the Christian life and the battle that is the Christian life, they think it's them against the sin nature. They think it's them against the devil. They think it's them against the world. That's not what the word of God says. In fact, look at what verse 17 says. For the flesh, and I'm gonna change that word lust because it kind of throws it, throws it off, but the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit wars against the flesh and they are contrary to one another. Who's fighting for you? The spirit of God. You know what? I'm gonna take my little puny left hook out of the fight. I'm gonna let the spirit, I want the spirit of God to land some haymakers on this thing, right? I mean, that's, that's what we're after. And we need to be reminded that the spirit of God wants to deliver you from sin's power. The spirit of God can do it. He's the only one who can. And this is why if you, if it, we've got to remember and be encouraged that Romans seven, Paul is trying to deliver left hooks from his puny, weak little arm on sin, and he's getting dominated. He's getting dominated. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. He's getting dominated. And it's not until chapter eight where he begins to introduce and recognize that it's a person who must deliver him from sin's power, and that person is not him. That person is the Spirit of God. And so just very, uh, hopefully a very encouraging note to end on there, and then next week we'll actually get to the punchline in verse 21. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. We, we do want to leave this morning, Lord, just again, encouraged and occupied 
with your son. We wanna be encouraged and occupied with your great salvation plan from start to finish. And Lord, just give us, uh, continue to give us wisdom as we attempt to to navigate the scriptures and as we attempt to understand context, we, we attempt to understand what you desire to communicate to us in your word. And as a result of our conclusions, we ask simply that your son would be glorified and it's in his name we pray, amen.